Well, doesn't your heart feel so warm and Christmassy <laughs> after hearing that read? Can we give it up for Dan? Our scripture reading team just got cut in half, so. Um, well, isn't it interesting that the story of Christmas, which is supposed to be a story about hope, and hope implies the future. Hope implies a future that's bright. The Christmas story that's a story of hope starts with something ancient. Isn't that interesting? You know, at the holidays, um, on the one hand, it's a time of fun and celebrating and people being together and um, there's a lot of joy that comes with the holidays, but the holidays can also remind us that the world is a broken place. The holidays can remind us of the loneliness that exists in the world, the disease, the poverty. Holidays can be a reminder of divorce and loss and disappointment and anxiety and division and awkwardness and addiction. There's darkness everywhere. And the holidays have a way of reminding us of that, don't they? And in the midst of this darkness, as the weepies say, the world spins madly on. What are we supposed to do about it? The world just keeps going. And yet Christmas claims that a weary world can rejoice. Christmas claims that there is healing in someone's wings. Whose wings is their healing? And what can cause a weary world to rejoice? Will our healing be found in a new political leader? Will our healing be found in a new drug? Will our healing be found in a new technology, a new discovery, a new philosophy? With enough research and education, with new legislation and new organization and new ways of doing things, can we heal the world? The Christmas story poses us with a question. What if the hope that our world needs is not found in something new, but something ancient? Today, I wanna to talk about why this ancient genealogy brings good news that can heal the world. Why can this ancient genealogy, this list of names, bring good news that can heal the world? That's what we're gonna talk about. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter one is where we'll be today. This is on page 855 in the Bible that's provided there in the seat. Um, I've been told that page 855 doesn't actually have the page number on it, um, but you can find page 856 and then go backwards and um, you should be fine. In the ancient world, genealogies were like a resume or a cover letter. And in a resume or, or cover letter, you're trying to put forward, why should we accept you? Why should we accept you? Isn't that what a resume and a cover letter is designed to do? And so you try to beef up your resume if you're applying for something new or you're trying to impress someone, right? You were just 
you know, mowing the yard for your uncle, but you're a lawn care specialist, you know? Um, and even as adults, we have ways of doing this kind of stuff where we make ourselves, you know, feel, sound better or whatever. And, um, and the reason is because a resume or a cover letter is intended to make people accept you. In the ancient world, they didn't care as much about what you had done as they cared about who you were from. Who did you belong to? And so, because they were much more family and community oriented in the ancient Near East, um, their question, who do you come to, who do do you come from, who do you belong to, was very important to them. And so, Matthew begins his gospel by giving us Jesus' resume and cover letter. He says, I want you to know who Jesus comes from, who Jesus belongs to. Matthew has a goal that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, when you see the word Christ in the New Testament, that is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. Instead of Mr. Jesus, he's Christ Jesus. Instead of Dr. Jesus, he's Christ Jesus. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. Matthew wants for you to read this gospel account, this book that he's written called in our New Testament, Matthew. He wants you to read it and conclude that Jesus really is the Christ, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is the one that God has promised will come and bless the world. And so in order to help make that case, he tells us his genealogy. And in this first verse, we get Matthew's summary for what we should take away from this long list of names. This is a long list. Some of these people you may have heard of, even if you've got no background with the Bible, you probably are familiar with some of these names. But many of the names we don't know anything about. But the long list of names is intended to be summarized with this. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Another way of saying that, that would have made sense to Matthew's original readers, is this. And here's the whole point of the sermon today. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. So today we're going to talk about each of those, each part of that sentence. First, Jesus was promised. Second, Jesus was the promised king, the son of David. Third, Jesus was the promised, is the promised king of blessing, the son of of Abraham. So let's talk about that. First, Jesus was promised. Jesus was promised. I don't know what your perception of God is. 
I don't know what you think about when you think about God. Maybe you think about a disinterested dad who only really gets involved when there's a problem. Maybe you think about God like he's Santa Claus and he's just this jolly grandfather figure who basically exists to give you what you want as long as you're good. Maybe you think about God as your steady companion. You know, he's along for the journey with you and he'll listen to you and encourage you as you pursue your dreams for the world. I don't know what your perception of God is, but here's something that you should know about him. Is God makes promises and God keeps promises. God makes promises and God keeps promises. And that actually tells us a lot about his character. The fact that God makes promises means that God is personal. He's not some aloof ruler over the cosmos who is occasionally looking down to check in on, you know, how the kids are doing in the back room. God is personal. He makes promises to his people. And the reason that he makes promises to his people is because he has a vision for the world. He has a vision for his people. He has a plan for his people. You don't make promises unless you want to be trusted, unless you, you want to do something good. You don't make promises. So the fact that God makes promises means that God is personal. The fact that God keeps promises means that God is powerful. He keeps promises. This genealogy is designed in part to show us that God keeps his promises even in the face of crazy life circumstances. We say that God is providential. That's the theological term for that. In the midst of all kinds of crazy stuff happening in the world, God still works everything together for his plan, for his purpose. God not only can make promises, anybody can do that, but God can keep promises. Even as life gets crazy, he still guides things to his desired end. He's providential. He's a God who makes promises and keeps them. Two of the most significant promises that he made were to David and to Abraham. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But every single one of these names, even though David and Abraham are the most significant for Matthew's purposes, every single one of these names is a testament to God's providence, to his presence with his people, his personal nature with his people to keep promises, to, to make promises and his power to keep them. Every single one of these names is an example of that. Think about this for just a minute. Look at verse two. Abraham fathered Isaac. Now that is just a simple little statement, three words. But if you would rewind the clock 2,000 years and ask Abraham's neighbors if Abraham was ever going to have a kid by his wife, Sarah, 
what would they have said? If you would have asked Abraham at various points along his life, waiting for God to keep a promise that he would have a son, what would Abraham have said? But Abraham fathered Isaac. Because against all odds, God makes promises and keeps them. Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now again, we're summarizing like a hundred years of history in just a tiny little phrase. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. But do you know Jacob's story? Jacob's story is he had to run away from his home because his brother was going to kill him. He lives as basically an exile. He gets deceived after working for seven years to marry one daughter. He gets deceived and has to marry another daughter. Then he works another seven years. He makes all kinds of mistakes. He goes through all kinds of difficult circumstances, some that he brought upon himself and others that just, man, life is hard and always has been. And yet, through all of those experiences, there's a family of 12 brothers that's born from him. And were it not for the difficult things that he had been through, then those things would not have happened. Those 12 people would not exist. And if those 12 people did not exist, God would not have been faithful to keep his promise to Abraham, but God is faithful. And God is providential. He works all things together according to his plan. We could keep doing this with every single name. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I mean, just go read that story, Genesis 38. I'm not even gonna get into it because we've got kids in the room and it is not kid-friendly, but it's in the Bible. And Matthew intentionally draws attention to it. He could have just said, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah. Or he could have even just said Judah fathered Perez because he's the only one that we need for the genealogy to make sense, but he doesn't. Instead, he says Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, which is a story that you should go read. Verses five and six. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. That's Joshua chapter two. That whole story ends up here in this genealogy. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. The book of Ruth is about that. The whole thing is summarized in just a little phrase and shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. Do you see just the point in the first six verses? Man, each one of these people has a crazy life. Crazy stuff happens, but God made promises and he keeps them. He's providential. Verses seven through 
11 describe the events of first and second kings. Then, verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered, and I'm not even gonna try. But the point in verse 12 is after the exile to Babylon. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's a long, long story being summarized here. But the point is, when the nation of Israel had fallen, when it seemed like all hope in the fact that God is gonna be with Israel, when it seems like all hope is lost, there's someone fathering someone who's gonna father someone, who's gonna father someone because God makes promises and God keeps them. There are all kinds of emotions and circumstances represented in this genealogy. There is fear, there is shame, there is disappointment, there is confusion, there is depression, there's failure, there's success. And these were all real and significant moments. But here's what the genealogy is designed to teach us. As real as those moments all were, and as serious as the circumstances were for these individual people, they were not ends in and of themselves. Do you know what that means? It means that they weren't the final point. These people's lives were part of something much, much bigger. And these people are remembered today, not because of what happened in their life, but because of what was happening in God's work through their lives. And that means that just like them, we are not positioned to see what God may be working in our lives. We do not know. But the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that generations from now, when you zoom out, everything will be part of God's plan. When you are facing difficult circumstances, when you are facing devastating decisions that you have made, and you're trying to sort out, how is all of this stuff gonna work together? Is my life ruined? Or is my life gonna be okay? Maybe you're just asking that question. When you're asking that question, the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that you may not be able to pinpoint all of the answers to all of your questions today or even in your lifetime. But when you zoom out generations from now, God will be faithful to keep his promises. And so, Verse 17, Matthew summarizes this whole thing. 
He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. What Matthew is doing here is he's basically summarizing the whole Old Testament. The time from Abraham to get you to David, the time from David to get you to the exile and the time from the exile to get you to Jesus. He's summarizing the whole Old Testament, the whole story of the Bible. And he's saying, it was all part of God's plan to bring the Messiah to us. And who is the Messiah? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised King of blessing. So Jesus is promised. He's the promised King of blessing. God is working providentially in all circumstances, the good and the bad, to bring about his purposes in the world. What should you do about that then? How should that, everything we've just talked about, how should that affect the way that you think about your own life? How should that affect the way that you live? I think that it means that you should walk by faith in your generation. Trust the promises of God in your generation. Listen to what is said about David in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 36 This is interesting. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep. Now, what a way for a life to be summarized. He served God's purpose in his own generation. The same can be true of your life. And then he fell asleep. That is, he died. The reason it says fell asleep is because he will rise again because of the next verse. He fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and decayed, verse 37. But the one God raised up did not decay, referring to Jesus in his resurrection. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. This little verse, I love it because... Paul is preaching and he's summarizing David and he's like, David was awesome, wasn't he? He's dead now. He served God's purposes in his own generations. But there's one who is not dead. There's one who will not decay. And David just fell asleep because of this one. David's whole life is really about the one who came from him. And the same can be true for you. Your life can have eternal meaning. Your life can last forever. Your life can be known. Your name can be remembered, not by what you accomplish on this earth, but by who you could be connected to while you're on this earth. And you could be connected to the one who has been raised, Jesus. And so here's Paul's application of that. He's just said that in Acts 13. And then here's what he says next, Acts 13, verse 40. So beware, beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. And here's what's said in the prophets. 
Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. Do you believe that? See, if you were to try and ask any of these people in this genealogy, do you think God's doing a work through you? If you were to zoom in on Ruth's story at certain parts and asked her, do you have any idea how God's using your life for his purposes? No, she's not positioned to see that. But God was doing a work in her days that she wouldn't have even believed if he would have told her. The same is true for you. So how should we live in response to this? Walk by faith. There is hope for you in this. Even if you are a miserable sinner and you've failed, don't give up now. Instead, turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness for your failures. Your story does not have to end as you being a failure. You may go down in this life as a total failure that nobody respected, but you and your name can live on eternally as blessed because of this king, the one who has come, Jesus. Be faithful to God even when it seems like you're losing for it. Do not give up, endure, persevere. God is doing a work in this generation and we are not positioned to see it all now. Okay, that's the first point. Jesus was promised. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. The next two will go faster. Jesus is the promised king. That is, he's the son of David. The reason that the first point, that Jesus was promised, the reason that that has so much hope and so much life that it can offer to you and that it can offer to a weary world, that can cause a weary world to rejoice, the reason is because of what God has promised, specifically what he's promised to David and to Abraham. Jesus is the promised king, the son of David. <coughs> Excuse me. David, if you don't know his story, you can read about it in the book in the Bible called First and Second Samuel. David was a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He was chosen out of his brothers to be king. And then he became the king of Israel. When he was the king, God came to him. You can read this in 2 Samuel chapter seven. And God made a promise to him. He said, you are going to have a seed or a son. There's going to be a son in your family whose kingdom will have no end. He will reign forever over all the earth. And then David had a son. His name was Solomon. And Solomon did many wonderful things. He was an exceptionally wise king. He built a temple in Jerusalem so that God's people could worship. 
he amassed great wealth. There was peace and prosperity under his reign. And then he turned from God and he became a failure. And as a result of his sin, eventually the kingdom would begin to crumble and it seemed as if all of the hope that David's gonna have, some, there's gonna be a king from the line of David who's gonna reign over the earth. Yeah, right. The whole kingdom just got exiled to Babylon. This genealogy is designed to show us that God is faithful to keep his promises and he has kept his promise to David by sending his son, Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. Matthew uses that little phrase 10 times in his gospel. Nine times are referring to Jesus and once is referring to Joseph. This whole genealogy is designed to help us see the connection of Jesus to David. Notice that verse 17, (coughs) we looked at this already, but why the three groupings of 14? Most scholars believe that this is not a complete genealogy. There are names that are omitted. There are generations that are omitted. Matthew has included these for a purpose and he's grouped them with three groups of 14. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons is because he's trying to show in this super creative way that Jesus is connected to David. See, um, in uh, the ancient Near East, and this is actually still true in in parts of the world today, um, people assign value to a person's name by adding up the letters in their name. And so um, if, you know, in the case of David, um, D-V-D is his name uh, transliterated in, uh, into English from Hebrew. So D-V-D is David's name. And if you were to add up those letters, do you know what the value of David's name is? 14. And David has three letters in his name. And so many scholars believe that what Matthew is doing here is this creative poetic device to help us see that this whole genealogy is designed to connect Jesus and David. When you think about David, you should think about Jesus. And when you think about Jesus, you should think about David. So there are three groups of 14 to correspond to David, the one who has three letters and his value is 14. That's a thing called gematria. You can Google that if that's kind of thing is, if that kind of thing is interesting to you. But what is the other connection to David? So there's that. But then you've also got the fact that David is from Bethlehem. Where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Jesus is going to be appointed as king. Then he's going to be opposed. Then he's going to be exiled. And then he's going to be enthroned. And this is also the path that David followed. 
throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew wants, to, wants us to see that Jesus is patterned after David. Jesus is the unique son of David. He's the promised king who will reign over all things. He's better than Solomon. When you think about who the son of David is, Matthew says, you should not think about Solomon anymore. Instead, you should think about Jesus. Jesus is the wise king who builds a meeting place, a temple between God and man. And he himself is that temple. Jesus is the promised king, the son of David. And that means that Jesus also has a kingdom. And it's that kingdom that can offer hope to the world. Why? Why is Jesus being the son of David, the king, the promised king, good news for the world? Why can that cause a weary world to rejoice? And the reason is point three. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. The word blessing just means God is gonna do something good for you. God is going to give you joy. God is going to make your life matter. He's gonna make your life count. Why is calling Jesus the son of Abraham, calling him the king of blessing? Why is Abraham, when you think about Abraham, why should you think about a blessing? And the reason is because of the promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says this, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, he says. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you famous. That's what it means that, that you're going to be blessed. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be famous. And Abraham at the time would have said, if I'm gonna leave my relatives in the land where I'm from, there's no way that's gonna happen. In the ancient world, you don't go make a name for yourself by leaving your family. But he leaves, he goes. And God does not end his promise there. Verse three, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples on earth will be blessed 
through you. Now that was also shocking in the ancient world. God is saying, Abraham, through you, I'm gonna do something for all the clans, all the tribes, all the nations, all the people groups, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Most nations rise up and they build their own empire. They conquer and they oppress the peoples. But you, Abraham, are going to be a nation that is going to actually bless the whole world. You, Abraham, will bring about a kingdom that I'm going to do something great for the whole world in. And so in the Old Testament, God's blessing or cursing is determined by someone's relationship to God through Abraham. Did they begin to trust the promises of God made to Abraham or not? Now, Matthew is helping us see that Jesus is this promised son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham who has come to bring God's blessings to all the peoples of the earth. And in the genealogy itself, Matthew helps us see that. See, one of the things that makes the genealogy so fascinating is the mothers that are mentioned. Typically in ancient genealogies, you don't mention the mother because the power and prestige, the wealth of the family comes down through the father. But throughout this genealogy, there are mothers mentioned. And the mothers are helpful because they teach us something. They teach us that Jesus' blessing, the blessing God promised to Abraham is going to come through Jesus, and it is going to include all peoples. It means that in God's kingdom, men and women are included in the blessing. God created men and women in his image in the garden. Men and women have both suffered from the curse of sin in this world. And men and women can both be redeemed by God through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But these women also help us see, not just that men and women are included in the blessing, but these women help us see, these mothers help us see that sinners and saints are included in the blessing. Tamar shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar is a woman who had been hurt and abandoned in numerous ways, and she's a woman who was deeply sinful. And she shows up in the family tree of Jesus. You could have easily just passed over her name, but she's mentioned. Why? Because Matthew chapter nine, Matthew's gonna tell us, Jesus came for sick people. 
Jesus welcomes people like Tamar at the table because he came for sinners. Rahab, her profession was, she was a prostitute. She shows up in the family tree. And then you've also got people of exemplary character. Verse five, Obed by Ruth. Ruth is described as the Proverbs 31, noble woman. Sinners and saints can be included in this blessing because Jesus has come for all people, just as God promised Abraham. And Jews and Gentiles are included in this blessing. That is, people of different ethnicities are included in this blessing of Jesus. The kingdom that Jesus brings is not like the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom that Jesus brings. There is unity amongst all types of diversity. Look at these mothers. Rahab, she's a Gentile. Ruth, she's a Gentile. And then verse six, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Who is Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. He intentionally calls her Uriah's wife as a way of highlighting David's sin. It's a way of, I think, honoring Bathsheba and highlighting David's sin. And Uriah, do you know what his nationality was? He was a Hittite, which means that he was most likely married to a Hittite, which means that in Jesus's genealogy, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel has come to be a king of blessing for all peoples. And Matthew helps us see that by including the mothers in the genealogy. And if men and women are included in the blessing, and if sinners and saints are included in the blessing, and if Jews and Gentiles are including, included in the blessing, that means you can be included in the blessing too. Jesus is the promised king of blessing. He's better than Isaac. When you think about the son of Abraham, you should no longer think of Isaac, Matthew says. You should think of Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood will save us from our sins. Jesus has come to make God's blessings flow to all peoples, just as he promised through Abraham. So, that is the genealogy of Jesus. So how should you live in response to this? My hope is that you would live with hope. My hope is that you would live with hope. When you think about your life and all the things that are happening, remember that God is providential. He has made promises and he keeps promises. And those promises come to fulfillment in Jesus. 
the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You're not positioned to see how everything in your life may work out today, but you can trust that God will be faithful to you. So trust him, trust in him, trust in his son, Jesus, the one who has come to make the blessings flow to you. Jesus is returning someday with a kingdom that will never be shaken. Sinners like us can enter into that kingdom because Jesus was born and he died for sinners and he was raised from the dead. And when he returns, there will be joy to the world. So let earth receive her king. Let me pray for you. Father, God, we want to praise you for being a God who makes and keeps promises. God, you are so smart, you're so wise, you're so caring, and you're so powerful. So God, would you lift our eyes today? Would you help us to not be caught up in trivial pursuits in this life? But would you help us to seek you and your purposes in the world? Would our names be remembered because we were connected to you through your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray, amen.